We are live on the Conversations That Matter podcast for a wonderful evening. I hope it's wonderful where you are. It's actually raining where I am, uh, but we have some guests uh, with us who uh, they seem to be having a good evening. Uh, Stephen Wolf is with us, who is the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. And Stephen, you're enjoying a nice evening. I see you're outside smoking a pipe. And then we have um, Nate Fisher with us, who is the CEO of New Founding and uh, the founder of American Reformer. Nate and I actually have gone back quite a few years. We've been friends for a long time. Uh, we have Josh Abitoy with us, who's the executive director for American Reformer. And then uh, William Wolf looks like he just joined. William, welcome. Uh, William, I, I didn't get a chance to ask you since you just joined how you wanted to be introduced, so I'll let you introduce yourself. That was great. William Wolf's my name. Glad to be here. Okay, William Wolf is here. All right. Well, let's start here. Uh, I think we want to get into some specifics, but we want to start with the why. Why are we having this discussion? And from my point of view, there's three main things. Um, the, the first one is that I think, especially for Nate and Steven, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond to some of the insinuations that have been made by people who are associated with G3 against you guys. Um, and then I think the second thing is we need to clarify the issues so that people understand what is the disagreement over. There's still a lot of confusion over this. To be honest with you, I might even have a little confusion over this. So hopefully we can clarify things as we talk. Um, and I think uh, Nate has some thoughts on how to handle moving forward social media disagreements like this, because this is a new dynamic that we are not used to. And as Christians, we need to think through how do we treat people respectfully, but also uh, hold our, our positions in high esteem and, um, and and the God that we worship and his moral laws we understand in high esteem on social media. So um, with that, I just want to open it up to any of you guys. Uh, I mean, does that sound good? Is that why you're here? Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. All right. We're all in agreement. That's that's a good way to start the uh, podcast. Um, well, what I'd like to do then, if possible, is start sequentially and go through this, because I, I think most people understand things better when you start at the beginning and you go through piece by piece. And so um, I want to start at the this is a slideshow that I prepared just with some representative things that have been said. It's not everything. You couldn't capture everything because this has been months. But I, I would say in April. Um, there were some insinuations and uh, I, I don't know if you want to call them attacks. I think Josh Bice was sensitive to calling these attacks, but there, there were insinuations that the people who were on the Christian nationalist side wanted a Protestant Pope or believed in integralism uh, or they, you know, Stephen spe specifically was not doing biblical exegesis. So his ideas could not have been biblical, um, that there was a, a racial component, which was very, uh, wrong and unbiblical and all of this. So I put a few representatives there. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to focus on any of these or add to them, but I mean, wh where would you see this uh, this whole debate starting? Or what, on what issue, I suppose? John, could I, could I uh, set a historical marker even just a little bit further back? Sure, your audio is a little uh, staticky, but yeah, go for it. Okay, well... Is that, can you hear me all right yeah, or no? I just, I just yeah, I can still hear you. I can make it out. Well, look, I mean, I just, I mean, you know, it's very interesting if we br bring this conversation back to December of 21, November. I just gotten on Twitter in October and I'm writing a paper on Christian nationalism. 
And nobody knew I was back then, really. And I, I put a definition out there in early December, late November. And the definition was very positively responded to even by some people in the G3 orbit. I, I don't have to read the definition, though I'm happy if you want me to. And so it's very interesting if you go back even further to see how things have changed since then, because I would argue I haven't changed at all from that original definition by and large. So it goes back even further and something happened. Yeah, and that's maybe one of the things we should explore. Um, any of you guys want to weigh in on this? Where you think this, where this stems from, why this attack started in April? Because it, it was odd to me that it wasn't just one person. It was like, it almost seemed coordinated. It was a bunch of people at the same time. Um, many of them associated with G3, uh, and whether you want to use the word attack or just, you know, insinuating or casting shade on or whatever that I mean, it, it all seemed to happen around the same time in April. Yeah. Well, I mean, for my, for my own part, yeah, I, I didn't even know who any of these guys were until they started, uh, I guess, attacking me or attacking Christian nationalism. So, and I, I've been attacked from so many different people that I, I hard for me to know when, 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 what happened. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they weren't even really on my radar. I, I guess I maybe, maybe had heard of G3, but, um, but it wasn't really until, I, I don't know. I, it, it seemed like the, the guy, our, basically the, our friends started to respond to them. That's when I took notice. Um, I guess, I guess it was in April. I don't know. It, it, it seems like these criticisms come in waves from different groups. Uh, and it moves from one to the other. So, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the motivation was. Yeah, Nate, did you have something? I was going to say I, that was my perception. I mean, I, I'm also maybe a little bit of an outsider to this world. I'm a Presbyterian. I wasn't sort of deeply familiar with G3's background. And it, it, it really seemed strange to me. Like it seemed like just sustained, ongoing sort of waves of, of Twitter. Uh, let's call it aggressive to hostile messages, whether they're directly attacks, they're at least sort of challenges. They're pretty aggressive challenges. And a lot of them were questions, but they were they were sort of leading questions. Uh, and it was strange to me where it came from. It clearly seemed motivated by something. I mean, maybe they, my guess is they saw Christian nationalism gaining traction and uh, decided it was a threat. I don't necessarily assume that coordination is a, a bad thing, but yeah. I, I think that like just a lot of I bet they were just asked questions probably from their their listeners and readers. And they said, hey, what do you think about this? Um, and I think that's happening across like across denominations in, in the country, um, either like in the reformed or reformed kind of adjacent world. And I think it just came to a point where they they thought they had to deal with it. And, um, yeah. you know, so I, I think that's probably the. I, you know, maybe there was some things going in the background, but I think it was just that it, there's a lot of young people or just people in general who are interested in this. I've said before that we're in a time when uh, people are looking for answers and not that, not the kind of the old, boring, you know, um, worthless conservative lines that, that the, the neutral world sort of rhetoric. And I think people are open to other things, open to other ideas. And here, here we show up with uh, quoting older guys, you know, the venerable dead, and um, it it seems to violate the the social dogma of the last few decades. And so I think they, I think they they tried to engage it, or they have tried to engage the, these ideas. 
Yeah, and, and I, I'm obligated to say this because Angel, uh, I think this is Angel Garcia, if I'm not mistaken, but he for $5, he says, um, the reason it seems coordinated is because Michael O'Fallon gives them their talking points. So I don't know if any of us <laughs> want to confirm or deny that, but that's a, a theory, I guess, that is floating out there. And I've seen other people on Twitter say the same thing, but I mean, I don't really care where it comes from. I mean, it's just what we have to deal with, I suppose. Yeah. Um... I won't touch on that, but I do think there was some unified messaging across various different accounts, John, and you highlighted some of this, but they were questions, but they weren't entirely good faith questions. They were sort of leading, you know, so there, there was a question that, you know, for instance, asked, you know, how many Christian nationalists would like to be uh, following a, a Protestant Pope under the banner of Christian nationalism, or how many would be happy with integralism? Like, these are not questions that if you read Stephen's book or if you read some of the stuff about Christian nationalism on American Reformer, you read William's stuff, you wouldn't really pick those concepts up in any of that writing. Like, it's it's kind of um, argumentatively and I would say unfairly framed from the start, which is probably why it caused so much heat from the start. Um, I'm not sure it was necessarily anybody on this call, but certainly a lot of people immediately recognize those are those questions as being sort of unfairly or argumentatively framed uh, from the very beginning. Yeah, and I have some of them on the screen. I'm not going to read all, but you, you have the, the integralism, the question about a Protestant pope. Um, but you also have things like uh, you have like Nathaniel Jolly implying that uh, Christian nationalism usurps the, the role of the gospel and replaces it with legally imposed moralism and political activism. Um, you have uh, you know, Virgil Walker saying that building your own brand is difficult when you're trying to grow followers. It's easier to leverage the previous success of others. And and, and he's talking about some people. I know William was part of this uh, who put a, a statement together on Christian nationalism. Um, so th so there's a lot of things like this. I actually had to really narrow it down because there were so many. But this is where I think it started. And I, I think it's important to point that out, that it wasn't at least from my point of view, trying to watch this whole thing, I didn't see Christian nationalists start attacking G3 out of nowhere or saying that uh, they were terrible or anything like that. Uh, it, it seemed to, it, it was a few weeks of that kind of thing that I just showed you on the screen that um, took place before there was really much of a response. Um, and and I think I was with you, Josh, uh, uh, with with your dad as well. We were um, in, in Kentucky when this all started. And I remember we were talking about it a little bit and, and it was very much, well, maybe, maybe there's confusion. Maybe we, and I, I think I emailed Scott and Neil right then and said, Hey, would you come on a podcast or can we talk about this? Cause I think you and I both thought, well, maybe this is just a misunderstanding and we can work it out. And we're so downstream from that now, which is sad to me. Um, I think uh, one, I mean, they're not going to like this comment, but I think one of the problems is, is that they simply, had never actually dealt with the the arguments from magisterial Protestantism or classical Protestantism, whatever you want to call it, and they had a they, they yeah they, they had that they had the sense they, they had a sort of Baptist narrative. I mean, apologies to the Baptists here. I'm not trying to, but there is this like this typical Baptist narrative where like the you know the, they're the Presbyterians or Congregationalists or Anglicans. Uh, we're forcing the faith upon them and, and violating uh, rights of conscience and all that. They had this certain narrative, and so that when they when they read or see screenshots of of my book, they think, okay, this is like 
you know, Baptist drowning 2.0 or something like that. Um, and so instead of initially taking the time to understand the arguments historically and also in my book and others, uh, they just kind of went from what that, that sort of Baptist narrative, I think hoping that it would capture the attention of fellow Baptists who are, have, have been kind of socialized into that narrative. Yeah. And I think, it, I think what, what they realized eventually that they couldn't just do that. And so they had to kind of regroup. So it does seem that there was at some point they had to kind of figure out, okay, what the arguments are. I, I, I'm still not entirely sure they, they, they grasped them, but, but there, there was, I think initially this, Hey, we could just, uh, you know, uh, Baptist drowning 2.0 sort of narrative yeah. against yeah. nationalism. John, is my audio any better? I took the headphones. Yes. Out. Yes. That's it is better? much better. Yes. Wow. The AirPod Pro is no good, but just speaking out loud is great. <laughs> How's that for technology? Look, I'm not going to get into naming names, but I think there's no doubt there was a coordinated effort, right? Because again, you know, I, I publicly, you know, posted and been engaging on Christian nationalism for months when, you know, when I would, when I had no followers, no platform whatsoever. And so the continued effort to push for Christian nationalism is not, you know, a platform building exercise for me. It's because I came to a belief that this is actually uh, the right system to consider for our present moment. But I think that there was a coordinated effort to try to sort of label Christian nationalism as wokeism from the right and, and really try to paint it into the box of integralism, which was really funny to me as well, because I had also in my time in seminary written another paper denouncing integralism and all its work, all its works. You know, I denounced the Anabaptists as well. And I proposed, um, you know, something else in between, which is sort of akin to Christian nationalism. So I think that as Christian nationalism was gaining steam on the right and particularly percolating into congregations and working class individuals and constituents of various ministries and churches, then sort of a bat signal went out that sort of said, how can we how can we get on top of this? How can we counter this? How can we label this in such a way as to you know paint it into a box? And it's unfortunate because that's when it seems that the sort of good faith uh, disagreement or even honestly the interest in it from this crowd went away. Yeah. And, and I think for Nate and myself and maybe Josh, you know, we're just kind of painted and we're, we're, we're friends with you guys. So we're, we're kind of just in the same lumped into the same group. Cause I, I don't know, Nate, Josh, you guys haven't, as far as I know, taken that label upon yourselves. Have you? Yeah. I didn't think so. Never. I, I, I've, I've certainly been sympathetic to aspects of their aims. American reformers, been associated it's published pro-christian nationalist pieces but i've uh, i've always been clear that i'm not uh, i i'm not settled on on various aspects of that both including the prudence of the label and uh, even convinced of every aspect of the program i'm not unconvinced of it and what i noticed was interesting is i there were a lot of demands that i denounce or repudiate things I uh, and it's kind of like my view's not settled on this and you're demanding that I denounce it that's uh, I'm not going to do that but it, it was interesting even even being open to it, it, it really exploring I mean my position is I'm not an expert on a lot of this stuff I I came from more of a business background. I learn a lot from these discussions. I learn a lot from every American reformer article I read. I, I've 
figuring out a big part of my mission with starting American Reformer was I want to see some good discussions about what a Christian vision could look like, uh, discussions and debates. And we've published uh, anti-Christian nationalist pieces as well. And uh, it's a debate, it's a discussion that needs to be had. And it seems to me that even, even being open to discussion of these issues was something that was apparently beyond the pale for them and demanded denunciation. Yeah, it's interesting. I had retweeted a Nathaniel Jolly tweet who's associated with G3, at least he's written for them uh, from January, where he said there's good people on both sides of this debate. And it's a discussion that needs to be had, just like you just said, uh, Nate. And something changed. Obviously, something changed big time since then. And it hasn't really been all that long. Um, I did want to show everyone just a few representative tweets. Th this continued, and I would say the temperature got higher uh, in the discussion through uh, May and June and July, and the accusations and insinuations, I should say more so, uh, about Christian nationalism, Christian nationalists um, were perhaps more serious or at least more damning in our current secular framing um, regarding racism accusations or, or kinism, I should say. I think that was the term used. Uh, and um, starting to question um, even, you know, I have a tweet right here from Josh Bice. This was, I think, from last week where he was questioning Joel Askell's uh, commitment to the G3's um, ministry to local churches. Like Joel Askell doesn't really care about ministries that help local churches or something. And it, it, it stuff like that just started to pour in. And, um, and, and this is where I think it became more difficult, in my opinion, to have a discussion about these things, because whatever window of opportunity was present to maybe do a public uh, discussion was was gone when you start demonizing the other side too heavy um i don't know if maybe this is getting into maybe your thing nate about handling these disputes online but that's the challenge that i see now is there's been such a demonization it's hard and, and i think we're still willing to I, i'd love i wish they were on this call with us i mean that's that's i've invited josh i've tried to get and virgil and scott but um they're not that interested and uh this is what they're saying online so any thoughts on that? Yeah, getting to my my point about the nature of these social media things, I think one one common response we've seen is and I think it's not it's not an it's not an unreasonable question is, well, why I uh, why do you have to engage? Why why can't you just uh, let it slide, be the bigger man, whatever? And I think that's that's often the right move in a debate. But I think social media creates this interesting dynamic that doesn't leave that an option. It, it leaves that an option after one or two often. If there's one or two sort of jabs, you can just ignore them. But when there's a sustained volley, uh, especially a sustained volley by fairly high follower account accounts, uh, that it, it kind of leaves a couple of options. One is it just brands something. If it's unresponded to, it brands something. Uh, you've seen this in a lot of political cases. You've seen a lot of times one candidate will uh, launch a lot of negative things and the other won't respond and they just don't recover from that. And it's it's just the, the nature of reality is you do need to respond. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can respond, uh, but uh, if it's going to be sustained, it, it will have an impact on how people perceive things, especially if it's coming from people they see as, as good Christians. And then secondly, 
the other nature of social media is people will respond. There will be a response. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people on our side. There's a lot of energy on our side. Uh, and by our side, I, I'm using that not just Christian nationalists itself, but sort of broadly people are open to these discussions. Uh, there's a lot of energy there and people will respond. And so there is going to be engagement on social media. And it's it's going to, if they want a fight, they will get a fight. And uh, again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that uh, we're called to vigorously, uh, vigorously make the case for what we do. Uh, so then the question is simply, are we going to be involved in that or not? And since obviously a lot of the, the questions ultimately go to things where we're seen as, uh, for whatever reason, we're seen as as leaders, even if I haven't accepted, accepted the label, uh, in in the case of, uh, and recently sort of brought into it personally, uh, then it, it makes sense for us to get in there and, and talk about it. It's kind of like people are wondering, well, what what are we going to say? And I think coming in and actually responding with the questions that I have in mind are, are helpful. But the, the main point that I wanted to, to make was it, it's not in social media, just staying out is not an option when something's sustained. I, there's a group of people and some will respond. Yeah. And that's a new challenge in a way. I think that's hard for people who haven't been on social media um, and, and some who still aren't to understand. And some, some of the folks in this audience aren't really, they're not on Twitter. They don't have time for those kinds of things. And so I, th I think it's helpful to explain the nature of this. Um, the, you can paint a movement in very uh, dark tones if you want. And if they don't respond, then that label does stick. Um, I mean, my first response was largely, let's have a conversation. Let's, yeah. uh, let's, jump this is a complicated issue there's a lot of there's a lot of content here there's been a lot of discussions there's been a lot of discussions going on for a long time between a lot of and among a lot of the people involved and uh, there's really many aspects of it too there's sort of the political philosophy angle there's the how do we respond to the current regime angle there's the uh, what's the vision we're ultimately aiming for and those are really three those are really different questions. And I think there was a lot of conflation of those. And the simplest way to address that is often going to be to jump on a longer form discussion like this, where we can really, uh, we can hash it out. We can at the, at the very least clarify uh, if there was a, an area of misunderstanding. And so my first instinct was just, just to offer that, just to offer yeah. a conversation. And, and you did that actually publicly. I have the screenshot right here where you asked Josh, if he would come on a recorded Twitter space with you after he, um, attacked you. And I have Josh Abatoy, you know, you, you did the same thing, Josh invited them to a public discussion. Um, I know Steven, you said, I think you've done this a number of times. Hey, have me on your podcast or, you know, I'll, I'll discuss it with you. Uh, and then I put some private messages from myself to uh, Scott and Neil in April, and then a recent one to Josh Bice. Um, I wouldn't show their end of it, but these are the messages I sent them in in response to some. Uh, the second was in response to a message that Pastor Bice sent, sent me. But uh, in in every single case, there was an unwillingness. I, I'm unfortunately sad to say uh, on their part to make something like that happen. And I, I mean, I could get into details, but, but I don't I don't know if that's necessary for me to do that. I know. Um, it's not just us, though. A.D. Robles was supposed to join us for this call. I know that he had um, some personal conversations. They did not go well. Um, you know, William, I don't know if you wanted to share. Uh, I, I think you were involved in some behind the scenes trying to get 
a, a d public discussion going or, or some kind of offering an olive branch in some way? Yeah, well, I wanted to make a comment about the framing here more generally and, and like how to facilitate conversations, because if somebody enters the public arena with like loaded and frankly misrepresentative questions towards people, it's almost signaling there's no desire to have a conversation. It, you know, and so then so then we try to respond it, asking for a conversation, but we have to sort of realize that's essentially, you know, trying to climb like a steel wall. There's no handhold there, because if you're going to lead with saying, you know, how many Christian nationalists want a Protestant pope or, you know, Christian nationalism is ethnocentric in a scary, negative way. And then, you know, people like us go behind the scenes and we say, no, 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 it's not that. Like, can we have a conversation? We clarify that. You know, it's almost as if we know that's not going to happen. And unfortunately, that's sort of what's played out here. I mean, look, there's a certain degree to which nobody owes anybody a public conversation. No doubt about that. But I do think that there is a degree of manliness and courage to if you're going to engage ideas that people are associated with or then people themselves and present them in a certain way that then you, you have the willingness to engage them in a conversation to, to hash those things out and I just don't know if that's materialized at any point yet here. Yeah, I think you're unfortunately right about that. Um, and there's been resistance to the discussion online. I, I think this is where the rope kind of broke and snapped. Um, like Josh Bice was, uh, he, he told Joel Askell, basically, um, I'm done talking with you or others who engage in childish, unbiblical behavior while hiding behind masks, which everyone I think has known <laughs> Joel Askell's uh, Twitter handle, but, um, Scott O'Neill, uh, also, you know, made a, a whole paragraph, a whole post about how he's not going to have public conversations with individuals who have been unwilling to be respectful in private, have acted belligerently in private, have proven in public settings to be manipulative and deceptive, um, or have a martyr complex. Um, and, and there's just, there's more examples of this kind of thing. I, I know for me, that's was Josh's objection to me, uh, personally, uh, having a conversation was that I had, he, he said, misrepresented G3 and I messaged him back and I gave him basically, you know, here's what I said. And, and I think it's provable. I'm not trying to malign or anything. I'm just, you know, explain to me how this is a misrepresentation or slander and, and nothing. He hasn't engaged at all uh, in any of that. And so um, I, I just, there's really nothing left for me to do. And I think maybe we're all in that same boat that we've made every effort and we've just had the door kind of slammed in our face. I mean, that's how I feel. I don't know if, if that, I'm speaking for all of us on that. Yeah. I, I'll just say that like for, for my part, I, I guess I've been in general kind of like ambivalent about the whole thing. I mean, I obviously have engaged them and I've tried to, uh, for the most part, provide, you know, my little short arguments and replies to what they and, and they usually ignore it. I mean, it was one of the interesting things that I'll essentially ratio them. Uh, I'll, I'll get, you know, dozens more likes than they would uh, on, on something and they don't actually engage it. And it's 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 kind of frustrating. And that you just come to realize that um, they have a certain audience. Uh, our ideas, or at least my ideas, are the sort of ideas that you can, you don't ha actually have to show that they're demonstrate that they're wrong or an error. You just have to say that they're scary. That's what it comes down to. 
um, you can you can quote me and say that's scary, and that's that's probably generally speaking enough for their audience. And I think that for many years that that sort of audience has been kind of socialized in into that kind of rhetoric. And so, like f- from my perspective, I, I don't expect to be able to convince these guys of my of my position. So I've I've just tried to kind of plug away at their arguments the best I can on, on Twitter so that other people can see it and, um, and hopefully be, be convinced by it. But, but ultimately I I don't have, I I think that it's, I I mean, this also comes back to some private conversations I had with Owen Strain or his last name, where I just came to the conclusion um, that there, there's no, there's, there's no way to, uh, to dislodge at least him from using the worst form of rhetoric against me, no matter what I say. Um, I, I don't know if that's true for the rest of the G3 guys. And so I, I just have to come to accept it and then, and just plug away. I, 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 I mean, I think that if, if we just have the better arguments, we have the better historical support, people are going to see it. And then the right people are going to, come to uh, our our positions or at least my position so i think that's the best thing we can do i you guys in your worlds might have a more you know have might be kind of in that world more than i am so there might be different tactics you take but for me it's just if they say something i think is wrong i'm just gonna provide as best i can a a short argument uh, against it well i'd like to give you steven and then nate opportunities to specifically respond to some of the claims that have been made. Um, I flashed a few of them on the screen, Stephen, about uh, from Owen Strand, basically saying that you're or implying, I should say, that there's this um, Kinnis problem uh, that I guess you have. And uh, I or at least someone has it. I'm assuming it's you. <laughs> I'll jump in and I'll just say that's well, no, I mean, see, the, the most troubling thing. One of the most troubling things to me, like I even don't even mind the direct attacks at me as much, but a lot of these, especially coming from Owen are sort of general subtweets where there's not a, a named person. And they're often pretty, they're often like pretty vile yeah. insinuations. They're ranging from sort of just negative people have done horrible. They've done, they've been, they've been nasty in private or whatever to all the way to, I. Uh, to much worse things. It's kind of like, I don't even know who they're referring to. I'm about as in the game as, as most people here. And I don't know who they're referring to. And it, it, it's, it's, it clearly gives a sort of impression It's designed to, or it, or it certainly has the effect of, in a sense, sort of making accusations that are insinuated against everyone in the movement. And I think that's, uh, that's just a really, and then refusing to name names when asked. Let, let me let me read one of them, and then you know if you, Nate, you can go on. I just want to give people an example because I, I have a few of them up here. There were so many with Owen, but he says if your pastor has been radicalized and now preaches paranoia and a false gospel of ethnocentric nationalism, you need to pray, ask to speak with them, and graciously raise major concerns. It may be time to find a new church home because the pulpit is no place for fear mongers. Now you know something like that motivates real people on the ground who listen to Owen, who go to G3, to then interrogate their pastors, which I have no problem with, uh, you know, applying a biblical standard to what's preached in the pulpit. But I think, as you said, Nate, this is um, this is kind of a this is what Russell Moore did. 
This is a vague, uh, there's this very scary big group of people out there who are preaching this horrible false gospel. I mean, I'll send people to hell, I guess. And well, I, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. So like if I were to respond to Owen and be like, dude, if you just read what I talk about ethnicity, you'll see that it's not kinist as kinism is, un, has been understood for about for many years, but particularly in the last 15 years, as it kind of grew in popularity in certain like certain Facebook groups back, you know, some of you guys may be aware of some of that history on Facebook. So there was like an actual group of people who claimed kinism. It was a particular thing. And, uh, and the way I present ethnicity is, is opposed to that form of kinism, but does it really matter to him that I could point that out and show that that's not that I don't affirm that. Uh, I, I think it'd be pointless to try to convince him otherwise, even if it directly, even, despite the fact that like in one of my chapters, I say that intermarriage connect is good in creating a, um, a, a more like solid, uh, uh, more solidarity amongst a, a culture. It doesn't matter that that's in there. It doesn't matter that my book says nothing about interracial marriage or inter-ethnic inter marriage. Um, doesn't matter that I define ethnicity more along cultural lines than I do genetic lines. It doesn't matter. So when he says ethnocentrism, he's tapping into a sense that that uh, ethnicity is a entirely genetic thing, and so then people should align around common genetics. Uh, even though if you if you read the chapter, I don't argue for that, argue against that explicitly. But again, it doesn't matter. So that's like the frustrating thing is I can't have you can't have a rational conversation with him or these people generally because they want to use certain terminology understood to their audience and then use it against not only me, but then broadly to anyone who claims Christian nationalism or anyone kind of in the Protestant right, you know, and uh yeah, and, and that's what I think, I mean, that's what Owen is doing. Like, he says ethnocentric nationalism. So yeah, in my book, I do think ethnicity matters, but I define ethnicity not according to a genetic, you know, as if you could do the genetic tests and say who's in and out. I define it according to a common culture um, and a connection to people in place that is not linked. I explicitly say that it's we're not, like a nation is not a a um, a family of sort of cousins by genetic line, but it, you know again it doesn't matter. Like they'll just keep they'll keep using the term, yeah. but not uh, take into account how I present it. And it's I did. It, it's it's an easy it's an easy way. It's unprincipled. Uh, it's irresponsible rhetoric given what I've said, but it is effective. So if they want to win, like if they want to use powerful rhetoric to win they could certainly take advantage of that they could take sections of my book where i say yeah like it i think the, the madishore reformers were right that in principle you can the civil power can suppress uh gross heresy i think calvin was right about that i think all the reformers were basically right about that i think everyone is right about that for a few hundred years um and they can screenshot that and say look he wolf wants to throw you baptists in prison that's despite the fact that in dozens of places I say I'm not, I'm not interested in that, that I want the Baptists on my side. Um, it doesn't matter because they can screenshot the, the section that says, 
oh, you affirm that civil power may use its power to suppress heresy, and that's enough. And then they dream up visions of being drowned. So it's, um, but th- they they could use that rhetoric because it's scary, like someone else mentioned before. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's the frustrating thing that if you that once it, like you claim to be a principled kind of interlocutor, but then you don't actually deal with the very substance of the argument and the way I define my own terms. So I think you and I both know, Stephen, from our shared experience that the Lutherans are the only denomination that we have to worry about if they get in control persecuting us. Yeah, is <laughs> <laughs> that exactly the case? Yeah. They, um, <laughs> I wanted to show that when you were talking, Stephen, I pulled this tweet up from Virgil Walker. He's responding to Tom Buck. And there's a guy named Corey Mahler, speaking of the Lutherans, who says interracial marriage is tantamount to murder. And Tom Buck had asked, you know, if, if there were Christian nationalist proponents who would publicly denounce this, tagged William Wolfe, tagged uh, Joel Webin, A.D. Robles. And Virgil Walker responded, I could care less if they denounce it. I'm not surprised that Stephen Wolfe follows this guy. My <laughs> So... It's like it doesn't really matter what you say. I think as you just said, Stephen, and there's Virgil Walker confirming exactly what you just said. It does not matter what you say. He could care less. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things they don't realize is that there was there were people who were like traditional kinists who have been kind of convinced out of that by me. So I'm not going to like wear that as a badge of honor. But that's kind of the irony here is that I'm I'm supposed to unfollow, repudiate uh, these guys, which I don't actually do. I don't I, I don't. You know, I, I haven't I, I don't actively repudiate people on Twitter. Um, that's just not something I do anyway. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah that, that Again, it's like th- that I follow him. I must therefore agree with everything Mahler says. I mean, I absolutely don't agree with him on, on those things. I I've, I think he, he takes this this a traditional kinist type absolutist perspective on these things. And I don't think that it's uh, it's actually historically accurate, biblically accurate. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't spend my days kind of like, you know, doing this performative repudiation that you're somehow supposed to do. Uh, I, you know, I know people do it, it's fine, but I, I just don't do that. Yeah. I do want to get to Nate and some of the objections to his association with Charles Hayward, but I, William, did you have something? Yeah. I just want to make a point about, so I, cause I saw that, that tweet from Tom and the Corey, um, Mahler incident and just want to make a couple of principal points about engagement here, right? And that's one, I think, first of all, this entire thing has been an act of gatekeeping in, in many ways, right? But when you are the gatekeepers, then you get to sort of exercise rhetoric and deploy strategies that those that you're trying to keep outside don't quite get as much purchase with. And one of those is nut picking, right? Trying to take somebody who claims a similar label that other people claim and hold them up as the end all be all example when we that's not a good example and so actually you know look tom i I know tom buck's son and he's a dear brother and i think that his effort there was a genuine effort to help the christian nationalists out but it just plays into this whole rhetorical strategy where i don't never followed Corey. i don't pay attention to the guy and all of a sudden, I'm publicly supposed to denounce this rotten nut picked out of the barrel as sort of representative of the Christian nationalist movement, which, as much as I don't like to do that, I actually did do it in that case because I was giving Tom the benefit of the doubt, and I think I was right to do so. But in general, that's how this strategy has been deployed. Yeah. Now, if you are outside of the gate and you try to employ 
the not picking rhetorical strategy or logical fallacy, you don't quite get as much purchase on it because they're safely ensconced within the gate. They have their positions and institutions. And so it creates kind of an asymmetrical engagement. And the anti-Christian nationalists have definitely tried to use that. And I think I just want people to be aware of that. And that's what's going on. I, I do need, before we move on from Stephen, I, I had two messages along these lines. Wolf never, I'm assuming it's Stephen Wolf, not William. Wolf never appeals to scripture to argue his positions. This is one of the big arguments against you, Stephen. And it's, I think the reason is because, especially with G3's audience, and I, I did come from kind of the MacArthurite world. So uh, if you want to call it that, but institutions associated with John MacArthur's ministry. And there is very much this deep respect for exegetical preaching, for Bible study, for understanding things in the original languages. So you know exactly what scripture is saying. And um, and, and there is a biblicism of, of sorts. And sometimes I've seen it go into a blank slate biblicism where it's um, probably not helpful. You don't have the historical guardrails as much. But I, I don't think that's MacArthur necessarily. Um it works though. It works on that audience. Would you tell them that guy's not quoting the Bible? Like that, that's a scary thing. So would you just address that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, when people say that, I, like, well, what, which premise is false and where's the invalid reasoning? So, uh, I mean, I, I assume that even biblicists believe in reason and logic and they, they agree that if, you know, two, two premises are both true and they, you know, relate to one another such that they produce a valid conclusion that you ought to also affirm that conclusion. Um, and so if you read my book and you see no scripture and yet you agree with the premises and you think the logic is valid, then what's your problem? So so that, I think that's what people miss. That's what people don't realize. Like, well, you didn't appeal to scripture. Like, well, well what do you disagree with? Um, a lot of my premises, like so when you're when you're addressing an audience, uh, specific audience, uh, you're trying to use assumptions that you think your audience already affirm, and then you show that those those assumptions lead to other conclusions. Uh, and so if I'm talking to a biblically based or like a reformed audience who affirms this or that, then I can work from that to, to make other conclusions. And that's what my book did. So if you're if you're wondering where's the scripture, I would say, where's the false premise? Where's the bad, bad reasoning? The other thing, too, is it's uh, it's political theory. So I'm doing politics and I assume the reformed theological system. I mean, I assume everyone affirms some kind of theological system that ought to be coherent and robust and systematic. I affirm one that I think is historical and the majority sort of system of the reformed faith. Um, and but but not everything is assumed. And I make a lot of arguments from it. Um, so. Yeah. I, I think that, and, and really this, this is, a lot of older works do a lot of this sort of reasoning. Um, I mean, a lot of theologians, like you read something like Lex Rex, a lot of the sections are not scripture, it's just him reasoning from, um, from premises to conclusions, and other parts of scripture. I do state in the book that I hope that someone would write a, a, a like a prove what I'm trying to, prove the same conclusions from scripture. Um, and so, it, you know, like I say, this is just kind of the beginning of the discussion of Christian nationalism. So I, I think that is, it's actually, I think it's a very bad reply. It's a very populist kind of reply. I think it relies on a lot of kind of, uh, let me just say kind of ignorance of how, um, historically 
theologians and political theorists have have um, and, and Christian, you know, Christian jurists and Christian political theorists have approached these questions. And uh, I, I, again, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you can reason from premises to conclusions, and that's what I do. So I know that's not going to satisfy a lot of people. I think it's partly because a lot of people, a lot of Christians were not kind of classically trained or they, they weren't, they, they thought that everything that you conclude has to follow from a kind of series of, of Bible verses or proof texts. Um, or at, at best, some kind of uh, exegetical method. Um, when if you pick up like Turton's Institutes of, of Linktic Theology, like his three volumes, he does exegesis, but a lot of his uh, a lot of his writing is really just clarifying the issue, clarifying the question, and then working through that question logically and rationally to have a coherent, um, solid conclusion. So I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how. Well I yeah, um, I don't know how else to. Yeah, to go from it's he doesn't quote Bible verses to therefore it's unbiblical is the thing that I that yeah. I've seen from. I, I'm not. I don't know if G three accounts have specifically said that, but I've, I've definitely seen tweets and stuff to that effect. And it's um, at the very least trying to cast shade on what you're doing as if it must not be biblical somehow. So. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think, yeah, and again, like I, I think that is actually one of the one of the worst objections, but it is also the most popular. <laughs> yeah, so I have to deal with it. It's, uh, but you know, well, I I think Nate, you you need a turn at this because um, Josh Bice did go after you. I would say it, it was kind of hard um, in a way. I mean, really, what he was going after Charles Hayward pretty hard, and uh, but it, it, the intention was to connect Charles Hayward to Christian nationalism to you. Um, so I don't have all of the stuff he said against Hayward up here, but uh, I do have like just two representative tweets um, where he says that uh, th there's this ideology in a manifesto that Charles Hayward wrote that's in this nationalist framework, which is basically very scary. And the reason he's bringing it up, he says, is because Nate Fisher is a proponent of Christian nationalism and connected to Hayward as a leader of one of the lodges in this in this group. So I, I um, and, and then I, one more, I guess uh, he, he's, he, he's asking Jeff Wright on Twitter. Do you find it concerning that a man who reads the praise and praises Lenin and pens a manifesto with language about violence, about his ideology, foundationalism, who calls the commitment to Christian beliefs in his ninth pillar um, while himself being Eastern Orthodox is a concern. So that's all about Charles Hayward. Um, Nate, what do you have to say about this? You're, you're associated with a secret society with Charles Hayward, who's, I guess, a bad guy. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with the secret society. And I think the entire framing, the entire framing of this was just, it was just wrong. And there was no attempt, there, there was no attempt to ask, like Josh could have pinged me, he could have said, hey, what's this sacker thing? What's, what's the deal with Haywood? And I would have told him, uh, but instead he launches into this Twitter thread against it. And first off, it's it, so Charles is a, a director of it. Uh, I'm a I'm a director of it, and uh, I'm a director at the national level too. It's uh, there's a number of directors. Uh, it, it's a very decentralized group. It's basically a group that was started with the sense that fraternity is breaking down like men traditionally would get together they would talk about politics they would talk about uh they would talk about uh problems in their community needs of their community and that was something that was really expunged 
it may was expunged by the left. The left intentionally destroyed that. And that was a real loss and that men need men need that type of opportunity. And so uh, the Society for American Civic Renewal, it's exactly what it, its name says. It's, uh, it's a society. We get together. Uh, we seek civic renewal. Uh, it's Christian. The membership must be Trinitarian Christians. And that's uh, that's a pretty broad requirement. And there's a pretty broad range of people, uh, even in the leadership, ranging from uh, ranging from people who would be uh, more evangelical to to Catholic to Orthodox. And, and it's sort of this big tent thing where where men get together and they like at the local and they're very decentralized. So the local chapters or lodges will have a uh, like a, a meeting and maybe 15 guys get together and a speaker comes in uh, and talks about something politically. Sometimes it's a political candidate or whatever. And then we we learn and sometimes we just hang out and uh, it's not really there's no sort of great secrecy associated with it uh there's a, a little degree of confidentiality because uh there's guys there who are at companies where even uh even being associated with a group that is all men would be seen as suspicious and it, it, exactly the kind of suspicions that josh is fanning here where they're going to try to insinuate all sorts of nefarious things which is the kind of thing the left has been doing against any sort of male group for a long time. They do that against the church. They assume there's all sorts of abuse and uh, horrible things that come out of uh, churches that's, that believe in all male leadership. And uh, it's absurd, uh, but it's it's what our society does. And I think Josh is playing directly into that. And uh, there, there's a reason that men who are raising families want to be uh, prudent about uh, what they share with a hostile world. So. Uh, beyond that, there's uh, it's pretty open uh, in terms of we just we, we, we do that. Uh, we get together like that. It's very decentralized. There's no central leadership. And certainly it's not Charles Haywood controls it and he uses it to implement his ideas uh, as much as I you know, I think Charles has a lot of thoughtful ideas. and He's a very thoughtful person about these things. Uh, there's none of that central control. So I think that's a, that's an example of just a straight up launch launch of volley rather than pick up the phone and ask something that could have been easily clarified. I had Charles Haywood on uh, my podcast this morning. It hasn't been released yet, but I interviewed him and uh, we talked a little bit about foundationalism. I'm not really scared by it, but what, what do you think makes people like Josh scared of foundationalism? What, what is it? And what, um, I guess, yeah, just what, what makes people scared of it? Um, yeah, let me hop in on that one. I mean, so, so vice, what vice says is that, foundationalism calls for calls for violence or at least references violence well i mean as we all know anytime there's any sort of political change or regime change there's violence occurs and that's all that haywood sort of means when he even talks about or references violence anywhere is the fact that um if you're going to have a constitutional change there will be violence guess what you know at our founding there was a revolution and there was violence um when you're under tyrannical conditions, there's a right. Um, some of the tradition would even say that there's a duty uh, to, to revolt. That necessarily involves violence. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think that scares people. And I think part of what scares people and what Haywood says is pointing out the fragility of where our political situation is right now. He's a student of history. He reads a lot of books. I mean, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't work anymore. He, he reads great books from history and writes book reviews about them on his blog. It's fantastic. A lot of interesting stuff on there. 
But the thing that he notices, I think any student of history has to notice, which is just that there's repeatable patterns and that you can kind of tell when a, when a political situation is getting tense, um, when a, a prior order is starting to get fragile and lose its grip on a society, there's tension. He points that out and he's realistic and clear eyed about it. And I think that I think that scares some people. But, you know, frankly, as as Christian men, um, I think all of us here, many of us are, are fathers or husbands we have a political vocation, we need to be able to look at that kind of stuff with clear eyes and actually think about what that means for our future or our kids' future. I'll add one thing. It's not some you know, fantastic leap to uh, imagine political violence in this country. And I think Charles's point that he makes time and time and time again, if you read his stuff, is the left initiates political violence over and over and over and over again. And anytime they get power, they initiate it. And if they see any challenge to that power, even if it's even if it's a purely democratic challenge to that power, they respond with violence. And uh, all you have to do is think back to the summer of 2020 and realize that this is not, uh, you know, this is not some far-fetched idea that they uh, they have rioted, they have uh, they have committed acts of violence, uh, and they will do it again. And that's uh, and you look at history and you realize a lot of the times that stuff escalates. So I think that's a big thing. Is and he's very very clear on on his in his Tucker interview. He's very clear about that and about how this is a it's a prediction. Absolutely. It's not something that you should wish for, but it's something that uh, responsible people have to be ready for. So I think that's there's a lot of these attempts. I mean, Haywood's a very provocative thinker. He's someone who's willing to uh, he's willing to coolly assess a situation in light of a lot of uh, sort of a wide range of historical analogs. And uh, there's what's interesting is. I have not, I, I mean, I have not, it's not like I've adopted foundationalism as some manifesto for what I'm doing. I uh, I read it. I found it interesting. I certainly would say a lot of the things in there remain, I've certainly not committed to them. Uh, some I may have disagreed with, but there's this idea that I'm, you're not even allowed to discuss the idea, this sort of, it, it must be anathematized. You must Total, you must denounce and distance yourself from this person. I think you see this very commonly among liberals, where anything that is outside of the Overton window, really a sort of a, a, a view of the world that was settled on in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a set of norms that really were not, they, they were a long ways away from the American founders, as, as Josh just pointed out, the American founders were, they loved a lot of these discussions. They were very active about a lot of these discussions. Uh, and then sort of throughout a lot of the country, there are a lot of norms. And what you have with liberals is there was a new set of norms that were adopted in the 60s and 70s. And similar to that, you have this sort of adoption of the idea that if you question those or you challenge those. If you really, if you threaten to go backward in the progressive vision, there's nothing worse than going backward in history. Uh, If you would even sort of suggest going backward that is uh, that is beyond the pale, and it must be denounced, and you must distance yourself from people who do that. And that's I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's uh, I don't think we as Christians should do that. I think as Christians, at the very least, we should consider what other Christian societies have uh, and Christ, the very thoughtful Christian leaders have believed, and we we should at least entertain those ideas. Yeah, even if they come from like James Lindsay, right? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe. One, one final, um, 
I'm, I'm a, I'm a member of this uh, scary society as well. And I, I first became aware of Charles's manifesto, I think three weeks ago when somebody first tweeted about it. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, like it's, you know, but I, I read it and I was like, what's, what's the fuss about? It's, it's basically, you know, he read a lot of old books. It's classical political philosophy. It's Polybius and Aristotle. It's all the stuff that our founders read before they wrote the constitution. Um, he calls for a mixed regime like our constitution had. If people want to do a deep dive, Time and Klein and I did a podcast on the American Reformer podcast where we read his whole manif- his manifesto and talked about how you know similar it was actually to a lot of the assumptions that our founders had. But we had a good time with that. Um, anyways, it's it's sort of an odd odd controversy to me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I thought it was kind of out of left field and seemed desperate. And I was just surprised the the president of G3 Ministries uh, would be trying to create that connection and, and, and vilify Nate. Um, th- there are a couple uh, questions, but I know, William, I think you had something you wanted to say real quick, right? Yeah, I mean, Nate, Nate got to it, but I want to kind of put it in just like a pithy statement, which is that assessing potential political outcomes or even dealing with the realities on the ground is not at all equivalent to like expressing a preference or a desire for those things to happen. When you prognosticate about the future as you watch how events are unfolding in real time and you suggest that we might reach a point where X happens and maybe X is political violence in America, that's not the same thing at all. And quite frankly, it's, it's just sort of a real sloppy argument to say it is that somebody is advocating for violence, right? So reading the political situation and future prognostication is not equivalent to advocating for something. That's just an important point everybody should recognize. Second is that the vast majority of political violence that is and has been occurring in the United States, and make no mistake, it is occurring, is being perpetrated by leftists. On the DHS website from July 21, 2020, just want to read this line. They say up top, for the past 50 plus days, as of the evening of Monday, July 20th, 2020, violent anarchists targeted the Hatfield Federal Courthouse and federal law enforcement officers in Portland. So, of course, we're familiar with the widespread riots, but you know, there's essentially a, a, a localized insurrection in Portland, political violence against the federal courthouse, you know, a, an autonomous zone that was created that cost people lives. As, as the sovereign state of Portland, so to speak, ceded authority to these violent political anarchists. And so to pretend like it's not happening in America right now, as it is, would just essentially to be putting your head in the sand like an ostrich. And then the third point I wanted to make on this is that it's very interesting. I, I can understand to a certain degree why those on the Christian right maybe get you know sort of concerned when there's talk of violence, because as Christians, right, we're not the ones you know, attacking the, the courthouse. But the reality is these same voices have been so quiet about so much of the political violence that's been perpetrated by the American regime overseas. I mean, what do you think it is that we did in Iraq for 20 years? What are we doing in Libya? Like, what what are we doing in, you know, even in Ukraine right now? We are perpetrating and funding and, you know, helping political violence unfold. And so it's very interesting, again, to see the cherry picking of sort of the pearl clutching when it comes to conversations about political yeah. violence vis-a-vis the political system in America and who it comes from. 
Yeah, I think those are very good points. Um, I, I, there are a few audience questions, and I just want to say, anyone who's uh, live streaming right now, if you have a question, get it in now because we're landing the plane. We've been going almost an hour here, and we, we didn't really want to go too much over an hour. Um, I, I want to just – there's one last question I had uh, that I wanted to pull up, and, and, and just broad question, but ask each of you guys – um, what do you think the root disagreement here is? Now, I understand, you know, the more cynical side of us might say like, or, or maybe not us, but I know other people have voiced to me that they don't think this is really about Christian nationalism at all. This is, this is a, a turf war and that kind of thing. But, but, but there, there does seem to be some kind of a, a, a disagreement, at least some of the people associated with G3 think that they have with some of us. And, um, this is a tweet from Owen that I thought might have uh, Owen Strawn that, that maybe clarifies. He said, in political terms, though mocked, I stand for religious liberty, not suppression of heretics, democracy, not a dictatorship, free speech, not speech codes, the Constitution, much as its authority has been weakened and a multi-ethnic state, not a mono-ethnic one. And of course, this gets very broad support. This uh, it, It's funny to me, though, because Josh Bice said said that uh, he wouldn't talk to people, I guess. I think it was Josh Bice. Uh, I, sh I showed it the screenshot earlier who were um, had a martyr complex. And, and so and Owen Strand starts this whole tweet, you know, though mocked, you know, th this is what I stand for. And, and these are things I would say universally, most Christians uh, would say, like if you say, hey, do you believe in religious liberty? They'd say, well, yeah, right? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is this what... I don't want to get in their heads because I don't know if Owen Strawn, you know, does he actually think that that's the disagreement? I'm assuming he does. But, you know, when we look at a list like this and, and this is being promoted as this is the thing, this is the gate or the, the barrier between us. I mean, do you see anything that you're just really strongly against here that this this really just runs counter to what you believe and, and you would argue against it? Or is this generally kind of what we all believe? Or I mean, it's kind of vague, but I, I just want to give you guys all a shot at that. Anything you take issue with in this? Maybe Steven should go first. He's the scariest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I take issue with the pat, excuse me, with the fact that it's passive aggressive. That it's it's a typical tweet. It's Big Eva 2.0, which means that it's um, it, it's a you know like the, the old the old Big Eva sort of rhetoric is that you you say something that on its face is is um, on the surface is something most or everyone affirm affirms um but then it it implies that your opponents or enemies don't affirm those things and that's why people like that, that that's how that's what get likes on social media with this sort of passive aggressive rhetoric and i've i've written about this a lot in the past when i was criticizing russell moore so i mean this it's like again it's just like big eva 2.0 uh kind of rhetoric um i think like d separating democracy versus dictatorship is a very modern approach to politics and it's I, I frankly i think for it's kind of embarrassing for someone to um, affirm that that sort of binary approach to politics given the one well, not, not only the classical or just the political tradition of western political thought but also just christian political thought which always affirmed the legitimacy of multiple or of different types of regimes but um uh yeah i mean uh, in terms of religious liberty, again, it's one of those passive-aggressive attacks where uh, you know you, you can, where he's essentially affirming war in court religious liberty, which means essentially religious chaos, which means um, the left will ultimately take over as they did. Um, whereas uh, I think in, in American 
his American history before the founding, at the founding, after the founding, there was an affirmation of religious liberty, but it was understood that religious liberty would only function and exist well under a Christian or an American context under, under a Protestant framework or a Protestant foundation. And that's why there was so much interest in maintaining the sort of Protestant dominance in the, in the United States, because there was a thinking that, like I said, Protestantism is the foundation of religious liberty, um, theologically, conceptually, philosophically, and just culturally. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. Um, I, I don't know what else is on the list. The multi-ethnic thing. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that's an, that, that's an attack on me. I, I get, I'm, I'm a, I'm a paleoconservative, and a paleoconservative traditionally has affirmed that it is good to have a regional um, ties to a place with a people that have got that have lived on that place for generations. I think it's pretty much indisputable that you have a connection to this country because each of us has probably a story of a grandfather or a father or a great grandfather who was a part of, say, World War II. And each of us could probably give a story, uh, maybe not maybe not an exciting, you know, Medal of Honor sort of story. But nevertheless, my grandfather was in Honolulu during World War II. My other grandfather volunteered, but um, he was medically disqualified. Um, we all have those stories that connects us to this country. Um, so I think that there, there certainly is a generational component to your attachment to a place that cannot be shrugged off. Um, now, whether there's, you know, I, so I, I certainly think there could be a multi-ethnic uh, um, populace under a state. I won't deny that. Um, but there is something good about having a, a connection, a generational connection to a place. And that's what I tried to argue in the book. Again, when he says ethnic, he's appealing to probably more genetic sort of. A different founding. definition. But yeah. um but yeah, I mean, th there's a lot to talk about there. Th this is one of the problems. Is like you go through that list, and yeah. each one of those things you can talk in depth. Like democracy versus dictatorship. Okay, you accept the post World War political, the new political science framing that sets everything in a binary. Okay, why don't we talk about, you know, the other regime types or mixed regime or something like that? So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you I, don't I, have to go over all of it right now, but <laughs> but I know we're, we want to wrap it up. But uh, yeah, that's, I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, any of you guys want to weigh in on this at all? Um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta jump in on this one. Go for it. I think that what he has in mind, like Stephen already says, is post 1960 definitions of these terms, and he makes that somewhat clear with his little parentheticals. But just to rattle them off, like religious liberty, we had a religious liberty of a kind at our founding, but it was very different than what it is today. We had states that had establishments, we had blasphemy laws on the books, we had blue laws. We were self-confidently a Christian country, broadly speaking. Uh, we were tolerant, uh, for the most part, relative to most other countries of minority religions. Um, but if that's what he means by religious liberty, great. But I have a sense that he means something much more like 1960s. Okay, democracy. Um, read the founders. Most of the founders were actually, they, were, they had a very dim view of what they called pure democracy. They thought that was mob rule. Um, they thought that what they were founding was a constitutional republic, which incorporated elements of um, monarchy and aristocracy, and they blended those elements together to make the government more stable. They were very skeptical of the, the rule by the mob 
And by the way, like they also thought that you could have a democracy that was a tyranny. You could have 51% that decided to be a tyrant over the 49%. Um, maybe that's happening today. Um, free speech. Uh, so at our founding, people were free to speak their mind about political issues and criticize their government. Um, people were not, you know, free to blaspheme or to, you know, speak, um, generally speaking, that, you know, there were restrictions on profanity or pornography or things like that. That's free speech. And I'm all for that if that's what Owen means. But again, I don't know. I mean, he might very well mean free speech the way it's defined in the later half of the 20th century, which means everybody has a constitutional right to make pornography. Um, the Constitution, absolutely in favor of that. Um, I don't know if we, you know, I don't know how we get back to the Constitution. I would love to get back to it. Um, I think we're under a different Constitution now. And then finally, the multi-ethnic state. Um, just, I would say, substitute cultural for the word ethnic in his statement there. He wants a multicultural state rather than a monocultural state. Uh, at our founding, one of the most important predicates that had to be laid down in the Federalist Papers was John Jay's Federalist II, where he argued that the people of the United States had enough of a shared culture that they could be in one nation together. Most people throughout time have thought it was important to share a culture or language traditions in order to have a political life together. Um, I don't know if Owen's rejecting that or not, but it's unclear from what he says here. Yeah. All right. Well, I... I, I just because of time, unless you have something really quick, I'd like to move on to just a few of the questions the audience is bringing in. Um, so I'll, I'll open it up real quick as I pull up those questions. Yeah, I've got, I've got something quick on that. I was at um, uh, uh, an event in DC at the Hungarian embassy. And I think this is really important to point out that you could potentially have a multi-ethnic state. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but you can't have a multicultural state. But but what we have in America right now is is unmitigated multiculturalism, which is an acid that destroys all sort of cohesive, you know, uh, cohesive ties for stable civil society. You know, in some senses, when I see that that tweet from Owen, I want to say yes and amen. I agree that I don't want any of those things that you don't want. So we're on the same side. But then the fundamental question is, as Josh alluded to, well, how do we get back to the things that we want if we could agree on those things. And as I think of Christian nationalism, it really is an effort to get back to the right understanding of all those positive things that Owen listed. And it's, it's a path back. We had it, we lost it, and we need to restore it. How do we do that? Let, let me um, give you some, Nate, I, I'm sorry, you didn't weigh in. Did you want to say anything real quick or no? I think Josh, I think Josh hit it. I think in many ways, they, they don't want to venture far outside of sort of post 1960s, post 1970s, uh, framework. They like they, they like basically advancing Christianity within that framework. Uh, they are, and I think the other one is institutions, right? I mean, I think there's been a consistent theme we didn't touch on, but I would say they are very individualistic with the faith. They're very skeptical or negative toward any sort of Christian institution, and we there's been a lot of Twitter debates on that. And fundamentally, I think uh, where I'm probably most focused, I as I said, I'm ambivalent about the Christian nationalism, or I, I certainly am not convinced on that, but I'm 100% convinced that we need to be building Christian institutions, institutions oriented toward a uh, Christian vision. And that's, that I think is a real area of disagreement. Yeah. All right. Some, some questions from the audience. So uh, here's one for 1999. Um, 
is it inherently better to marry your own race? So the word race is used, not ethnicity, not culture. But um, so I'm assuming that there's a genetic component that Ian Franklin is bringing into this. Um, I mean, I think Stephen already kind of talked about this, but uh, I don't know if any of you you guys want to answer that question. Is it is it better or worse? Does it matter? I'm a, I'll pick on someone if we have to. <laughs> Will William, you want to take a crack at that? Or Josh? Josh, you haven't said much lately, have you? <laughs> you, you probably talked the least at this whole thing. I just so how about... off. I just uh, destroyed Owen, but okay, fine. I'll take a, I'll take a go at that. Um, I don't think it's inherently better or worse, but I think it's it's more common, and that's fine. That's not a problem. It's not something that we need to worry about. Okay. Um. Here's another one. This is uh, for Stephen for nine ninety nine. Um, what is the difference between uh, what uh, Douglas Wilson and mere Christendom and your? Okay, so I guess the question is: Do you disagree with Doug Wilson, <laughs> your Christian nationalism, and his mere Christendom? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I disagree with some of his arguments in there. I think his argument about, about free speech, his argument against blasphemy laws, uh, I think those are all wrongheaded. I think they're just all faulty arguments. I, I think he, he also comes from a post-millennial perspective and a, a, a certain one that uh, I, I would say is it wants to start with the revi with revivalism as the uh, so there has to be a wide revival before. I don't want to misrepresent his arguments, but I think he seems to suggest that we can't do much until there's a widespread, widespread revival spiritually. And my my argument is that each authority, so a civil authority, and I think societies in general as a sort of authority, can um, ought to exercise its power within it with with prudence according to principles. Um, and that includes ordering the people to to a, a Christian life and eternal life. So even though, of course, it's an essential element that there would be uh, um, the gospel would flourish in this community, I don't think we have to wait on a revival uh, for for there to be Christian assertive Christian politics that orders the people uh, properly. Now that that's not to say it's forced, but it is to say that. If the conditions are appropriate, then you can you can begin to act uh, with with prudence to to that end. So I think that's our, our he and I would disagree on that. I think. Um, okay. So so I I would take like so like Calvin in his he he dedicates the institutes to the King of France and he doesn't call he doesn't say hey let's wait till there's uh, you know, true religion flourishes, and then you can act and be a, Christ a Christian king. He said, "No, you're a Christian king. You ought to, you ought to be one now." Um, and and he's he's not Calvin's not denying that there ought to be preachers preaching the gospel at every corner of of the kingdom, but that as a king, he has he has the authority and obligation to act uh, with his power to and to that end. Gotcha. Um, so I think that would be the disagreement. There might be other things as well. Um, but, but again, I, you know, so I'm not misunderstood, of course. It, it has to be within the realm of prudence and the possibility. Politics is, politics is the art of the possible. Is that the right quote? So, yeah. Yeah, leave it at that. 
Well, let's. Uh, there are other questions that are very good, but I think we need to land a plane. We've gone 15 minutes over an hour now, um, and I, I just want to give all of you guys a chance to maybe make a short final word. If there's something you forgot that you wanted to say, or just if you want to cap this, and and um, I, I think maybe in particular, um, people who are listening to this, you know, how, how can they? What what should they take away from our discussion? So I'll go last, but um, anyone who wants to jump in there, go for it. So I'll start and I'll say I I I would love to I'm looking to build alliances uh, at every point. I'm not I'm I'm open to discussion. I'm open to debate. I'm open to challenge. Uh, and ultimately, I think we share a tremendous amount. A lot of the objections from the a lot of the objections from the G3 leaders are about things that I might consider theoretically worth considering when it comes to what practically we're trying to do especially especially in the private sector which is where really all of us are are focused i uh, largely it's uh private and, and religious sphere i think there's a tremendous amount of agreement and uh, i want to be working together with everyone who who share those shares those views i think that we we need to cooperate and i think we all i uh, we all know that there's serious problems here and we all generally, uh, certainly the vast majority of Christians, especially the vast majority of conservative Christians are uh, in agreement on a lot of the things that need to happen and we should be working together. Yeah, good, good word. Um, I, yeah. would say, I would say that we all need space to be having discussions about politics right now and we need to read be reconsidering some some assumptions that we've had we've had you know frankly a very comfortable run in some ways as christians but uh the atmosphere is changing we're having to consider questions that we haven't had to think about in a very long time um you know american reformer is like dedicated to being a forum for those kinds of debates so again we're not you know we're not you know the christian nationalist journal but we're very interested in running good stuff on christian nationalism and people who want to thoughtfully disagree with it are welcome to come there as well. Not, it has to be people who make arguments, not people who come and say, you know, these ideas are scary or whatever. But we need to have a debate. Um, and like I said at the beginning, if you've got a political vocation, you really have a duty to be thinking about, about our political situation. Hopefully pastors can be helping that process. Um, but at a minimum, I would hope that they don't, um, you know, folks at, at good faithful organizations at least don't criticize faithful Christians who are wanting to think through these issues right now. Maybe it's not every pastor's specialty, and that's okay. They don't need to be the expert um, on this particular issue, but they need to understand that politics is intruding on their flock, and their flock needs to, needs to think through these issues now. Very good, and I, I totally agree. Uh, William? Yeah, I would like to close by encouraging Baptists who support a constitutional republic and religious liberty, but at, recognize that they need to reject the myth of neutrality to be willing to consider that there are perhaps some pre-liberal commitments, either explicitly Christian out of the scripture or natural law arguments that are necessary to uphold a free society. And those are rapidly disintegrating in our country. Craig Carter said, you know, somebody has to say no to the radical secularists who want to tear everything down. Well, who's going to say no? I would say Christian nationalists need to say no. 
And as we see even increased reports of the mass immigration that's flooding across our border and, and everything else that's happening. I mean, today, two like elderly 70 year old, you know, pro-life women were charged in federal court or they were sentenced to be charged in federal court for their pro-life activities. You know, we're at a civilizational crossroads and Baptists have to decide whether we're going to do political theology by slogans or by tradition and scripture. And, and, and this is something that previous Baptists have understood. At the end of Carl F.H. Henry, arguably one of the most prominent political, cultural, you know, critics of the 20th century in, in Baptist life, at the end of his six-volume work, God, Revelation, and Authority, he says this, and I'll close with this. He says, if modern culture is to escape the oblivion that has engulfed the earlier civilizations of man, the recovery of the will of the self-revealed God in the realm of justice and law is crucially imperative. Either we return to the God of the Bible or we perish in the pit of lawlessness, which that's just a long way to say it's Christ or chaos. And that's what's facing us today. Yeah, good, good word. Stephen? Yeah, I would just say that I think we probably would all agree with this that one of one of the things we want to see and what i want to see as a, as a as an american christian nationalist is to see the return of a a, a an assertive protestantism um at this point i don't think just protestantism but an assertive christianity that says that that affirms this uh this place as ours um and is is willing to say that and act um for that end um, to secure it. I think that is, in fact, the most American position you can take given our history, uh, as I've tried to show elsewhere that that it was that the for most of our history, it was the belief that we're a Christian country and we ought to remain a Christian country. And there was a confidence in trying to trying to secure and um, yeah, trying to trying to secure that. Uh, so I, I think that's, but 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 at the same time, do that in a very American way, given our given our traditions. So uh, that that's what I'm all about. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I appreciate each one of you, and I just want to say I commend you for your patience in all of this. Uh, I've, we've watched this over the course of months play out, and I think some of you have demonstrating an incredible amount of patience with some of the things that you've been um, called by not just Anon accounts or anything, but actually people with institutional authority and in Christianity, um, or at least the insinuations that have been made against you. Um, I, I just would appeal to anyone from G3 who's watching this, who, who is maybe part of some of the screenshots and the public discussion on Twitter that's taken place, um, to just pursue the things that make for peace. You know, I, I think all of these brothers, including myself, that's what we desire. We, and I don't think we have stopped desiring that. However, we do recognize that there has been a shift that um, after a certain amount of time of this continued, um, continued attempts to uh, have public discussions that are profitable and, and even maybe private discussions that are profitable and having that not be reciprocated, um, it, it's, it's going to have an effect and that effect is going to be a divide. And I think that divide's already forming and um, it's a shame. It's a shame, I think, um, to the, the kingdom of Christ, but there is no vitriol on, on any of our ends and we, we're, we're firm in what we believe. We're going to defend it. I think um, each of 
the uh, panelists here have demonstrated that and uh, given their commitment to that. And my, I guess, charge for everyone who's listening to this is just to think for yourself, not to follow uh, someone just because they're part of a ministry that you followed for a long time or because they have a letters by their name or they're, um, they preach well even or, or speak well, but really think through what the truth is. What does the Bible say? As, as Martin Luther said, scripture and plain reason. What, what actually comports with what is truly true? And I think once you start thinking about that, applying truth to the situation that we live in, you'll come to your own conclusions on it. And it might take some work. Um, but that that is what we're called to do. That's what the Bereans were commended for. So um, so I appreciate uh, those of you in the audience. I know many of you are thinkers. You do think through these things. That's why you're listening to this. Thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. And any questions, uh, you can go to, well, you can go to my website, johnharrispodcast.com. Um, Nate, Josh, American Reformer, is that the best way to get a hold of you guys? Americanreformer.org. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Reformer. Am Reformer on Twitter and, and William uh, Twitter, I'm assuming. Is that where, where people can get a hold of you? Yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter. Okay, they just find them. Just find them on Twitter. All right. Uh, and, and Steven's on Twitter as well. Well, um, with that, guys, uh, good night to everyone. Uh, God bless. And for those going to G3, I do hope you have a good time. <laughs> Bye now. Thanks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.